This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell? What the hell is going on is Joe Biden went to a Democratic fundraiser and began having stream of consciousness about the danger of nuclear Armageddon, <laughs> which, you know, I'll tell you something, Danny, before we begin criticizing him, I just want to read for our listeners the exact words so we know what we're talking about, what Joe Biden said. Think about it. We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've got a guy I know fairly well. His name is Vladimir Putin. I spent a fair amount of time with him. He is not joking when he talks about the potential use of tactical and nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons, because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. It's part of the Russian doctrine that they will not, they will not, if the motherland is threatened, they'll use whatever force they need, including nuclear weapons. I don't think there's any such thing as an ability to use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. And then he said, what we're trying to figure out, what, what is Putin's off ramp? Where, where does he get off? Where does he go on a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he not only does not lose face, but lose significant power within Russia? So that's some serious stuff, Danny. The president of the United States has no greater responsibility as commander in chief than deterring the use of nuclear weapons. And for Joe Biden to just stream of consciousness at a Democratic fundraiser about his fears of Armageddon, I think it's, it's up there among the most irresponsible things that he's done as president of the United States. If we want to address this issue, which is possibly the most pressing issue that the country could face, you give a speech from the Oval Office, you give a national security address, you think through the exact words you're going to say with your national security team and then lay them out as declaratory policy. You don't just riff at a fundraiser about nuclear war. What is wrong with this guy? Well, you know, look, this is Trump-like behavior. This is the kind of babbling that we have started to get used to coming from the White House. And all I can say is, I knew there was something wrong when you had in your sentence the words Biden and think through, because that's not what we see. You know, we talk about this a little with our guests. And so I think there are differing perspectives on whether, you know, Joe Biden was being senile like he, well, how dare I say, usually is, or whether he was being wily like a fox. But I will tell you, my take here, and it is truly my greatest fear. Not Wiley. Is... <laughs> no, 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 not, not that. That fundamentally, we are starting to see, or we are going to start to see in the White House, an effort to try to end this war, not necessarily on Putin's terms, but not on Ukraine's terms. And I know what people will say, which is, well, they might try to do that. And Putin may even go for it because he's in such a bad place, but the Ukrainians will never agree. The problem for us is that we have been through this more than once. What the Ukrainians want and how the Ukrainians feel is almost irrelevant in both European and, and the US capital. And they may say, no, we're not going to stop. But what we may see from NATO is, oh, well, that's very irresponsible. You're very irresponsible. And now we're going to ratchet back our military aid supply to you because we need to see a particular outcome. We have a lot more leverage than I think even the Ukrainians want to admit at this moment because our support has been decisive. Kudos, Joe Biden, even though you had to do it with an electric cuddle prod on your butt. Nonetheless, kudos to him. But we have a lot of leverage in trying to get them to stop. And I worry about this more than I can tell you. 
Well, I don't know what you're worried about, Danny, because America never abandoned its allies, as we saw in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know why, don't know why you would be worried that the Biden administration would abandon our allies in Ukraine. But I mean, I think that you are right. And I think that Vladimir Putin knows you're right. And that's why this is so damaging, what Biden said, because, you know, when he's musing about the possibility of Armageddon and the possibility, you know, Armageddon isn't a tactical nuke in Ukraine, though that's that's awful. It's a tactical nuke escalating to a strategic nuclear exchange, which ends the world. That's what Armageddon is. A tactical nuke in Ukraine is not Armageddon. It's terrible. It's something that we should do everything we could possibly to do to ensure. But he's literally expressing his fears. He's, um, he's not even expressing. He's emoting. You know, what keeps him up at night as commander in chief and what keeps him up at night is that, that we're going to provoke Putin into doing something that leads to Armageddon. And so Putin looks at that and he says to himself, Joe Biden is afraid of my threats. I should make more of them. I should use this to get him because he knows that the only reason the Ukrainians are winning, and they are winning, by the way, as we will hear from our guest in, in very decisive terms right now, the only way that they can not win is if Joe Biden pulls back on his aid. And Biden's making decisions about what kind of, you know, we talked about this uh, a couple podcasts ago with Kurt Volker about the types of missiles that we're sending, where we're only sending missiles with a certain range when we could be sending missiles with a, with a much longer range that could put even more Russian troops in peril. Maybe he thinks that he can get Biden to not offer those weapons to the Ukrainians, not offer even better capabilities that could even do more damage to Russia by rattling this nuclear saber. When Biden says this stuff, Putin looks and says, my war strategy might not be working, but my nuclear saber rattling strategy may be. So I want to make an awkward transition here. I'm, I'm, sure. Do you remember Red Barber from NPR? Uh, no. Oh, so every Friday morning he would go on with Bob. I can't remember what Bob's name was, but Red Barber was this baseball commentator. But he and the NPR host every Friday morning would talk about all sorts of stuff. Sometimes they talk about baseball. Sometimes they talk about, you know, what's going on with American politics. They talk about all sorts of stuff, but Red Barber couldn't make a transition for love or money. And so the way he, the so way you're he would Barber. do it. Exactly. So, so you were talking about Armageddon and, and Red Barber would say, hey, speaking of Armageddon, Mark, I want to talk about the midterm elections for a second. So, one of the questions that I'm getting from the press, speaking of Armageddon, uh, speaking of Armageddon, the midterm elections, one of the questions that I'm getting from the press a ton right now is, oh, OK, Republicans are going to win the House, maybe even going to win the Senate. What's that going to mean for congressional support for Ukraine? Is it going to be all J.D. Vance or is it going to be all Mitch McConnell? What do you think, Mark? I think that the majority of Republicans do support Ukraine do support providing aid to Ukraine. And I don't think that that's going to change because even if there is a minority within the Republican majority that is skeptical about Ukraine, the combination of Democratic votes with the majority of Republicans who think it's the right thing to do will prevail. So I think I don't think you're, we're in danger of having a congressional majority that is insufficiently supportive of Ukraine. But I don't want to go down a rabbit hole right now because we've, we've got a podcast coming out on this very subject shortly with Matt Continenti. But I do worry about the J.D. Vances of the world. And we even discussed this with Carl Rove last week, the strain in the Republican Party that is rejecting a fundamentally Reaganite conservative foreign policy decision that, that inexplicably Joe Biden has made. Policy that he opposed during the Cold War when he opposed aid to the Contras and aid to Angola and other places like that. I think this is a fundamentally conservative foreign policy decision that he's made and that the most conservatives will continue to support that. And quite frankly, the American public, if you just look at the polls, overwhelmingly supports Ukraine. This isn't a you know 50-50 issue. This is an 80-20 issue uh, when it comes to most Americans. So, you know, and this, this is again where the saber rattling, the nuclear saber rattling comes in because what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is convince Americans, you don't really want to support Ukraine because you end up with a mushroom cloud where you live. Uh, and this could come back to haunt you. So, and I'm crazy. So don't think I won't do it. And unfortunately, there are too many people, you know, a minority on the Republican side who will grab that and say, see, you know, we don't want to get into a nuclear war with Russia. This isn't our problem. Let's walk away.
That is the challenge in front of us. The more we can remind people, the more we can have intelligent conversations about what the implications of a Ukrainian victory are for not just for Putin, but for Xi Jinping, for the regime in Iran, for North Korea, for our enemies everywhere without putting a single boot on the ground is better. We should be talking about this. We should be explaining this. The fact that the president of the United States hasn't stepped into the Oval Office to give a national address about this is shame on him. And the worst of it is, you know, old Joe Biden would have been applauding for this. I have no idea what, you know, new old Joe Biden is thinking. <laughs> but, 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 but that would be- that I'm not sure he does. Right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. That makes the so that makes that makes all of us. In any case, we should actually stop blathering and get our guest on here because he actually has been following this extraordinarily closely. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. I'm sorry to say this for all of our guests. Everybody knows the man who needs no introduction. Our colleague Frederick Kagan, who's the director of AEI's Critical Threats Project, he, together with the Institute for the Study of War, have been putting out a Ukraine. Uh, Russia war tracker that is the map that you see on your news channel. It is the information that you read in your daily paper. It is a fantastic, fantastic piece of scholarship. And in addition, they're now putting out daily reports on the turmoil going on in Iran. And don't think any of this is uh, unrelated. Bad guys are in trouble everywhere. They're trying to help each other. And our team is tracking this like no other. So it's awesome to have him on. Here's our interview. Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be back with you. So I want to talk to you about Biden and Armageddon in a moment. But first, I want to ask you about Vladimir Putin. Why is Vladimir Putin rattling his nuclear saber? Uh, Putin is losing on the battlefield and is not really going to be able to reverse those losses. And I think that the impact of that is beginning to dawn on him. Um, and he was he was really rattled by the Ukrainian counteroffensives in Kharkiv. And um, I think he is nervous about ability to control his own uh, military destiny here. And so he's doing what we thought he would do, which is that as he started to lose, he would start to rattle his nuclear sabers more. So, okay, uh, he's he's losing. He has been losing for a while. The right place to start here is, is, is this saber rattling? Should we be taking this seriously? Is he what people in university to call a rational actor? Or are those just sort of silly questions? Well, they're not silly questions. I look, anytime you have a state that has a massive nuclear arsenal uh, and its leader is talking about using nuclear weapons, you should take it very seriously. Um, and at the end of the day, the only person who knows whether Putin will use nuclear weapons is Putin. Uh, we have the problem here that we're, we're trying to forecast and assess the vision of a single human being, and that's incredibly difficult and fraught. Uh, that having been said, there are a lot of calculations that I think would go into his use of a nuclear weapon. Um, I think he is engaging in what we could call bounded rationality. So uh, that is to say, I think he's not he's not a complete crazy man, uh, but he is also operating, um, making decisions on the basis of a set of uh, facts that are not necessarily as uh, in accord with reality in various different ways. So it's difficult to understand exactly how he sees the world. But in general terms, I and a lot of other Russia experts uh, see that even within his bounded rationality, there are a lot of very good reasons why he should be extremely reluctant to use nuclear weapons. And he's shown that so far. Um, he has been reluctant, even though he's he's done some rattling. Danny, it's also important to note that the people around him have done a lot more rattling than he actually has. Uh, his own comments are much more nuanced as a general rule than the people around him. And we do need to understand that there is a really aggressive and irresponsible war camp around him. And it is not clear, they are influencing him, but it is not clear that they would necessarily carry the day on an argument like this. 
So before we delve into whether he's a rational actor and whether he would make this move, is there a scenario under which a rational actor would use nuclear weapons in this conflict? You know, is, is there a decision tree that leads to a nuclear strike within Ukraine that makes sense for Putin strategically? I'm sad to say that there could be, yes. Um, if he became persuaded that the only way to stop a Ukrainian counteroffensive from just collapsing the Russian army in Ukraine entirely, and if you were convinced that the West would not respond decisively to his use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and by decisively, I mean militarily, I could see circumstances in which he would decide that he needs to or that it would make sense for him to use tactical nuclear weapons to stop the Ukrainian advance and then attempt to freeze the, the conflict. But that calculation really rests on uh, a number of very complicated factors. But the key one is he would have to be certain that the West would not undertake uh, military reprisals because he is absolutely not able to uh, handle uh, Western military intervention in this conflict. So Fred, isn't there, I mean, isn't there another part of this that we have not talked about a great deal, which is if there's a circumstance under which President Putin decides that he needs to, for tactical or strategic reasons, use nuclear weapons, doesn't that have an impact on his own forces on the ground? I mean, isn't the fallout going to be something that potentially has implications for Russia, depending on how the wind is blowing as well? Yeah. No, Danny, this look, this is an excellent point. And this is one of the factors that militates against um, Putin using nuclear weapons. The Russian, so in theory, the Russian military is able to operate on a nuclear battlefield. In practice, the Russian military that's in Ukraine absolutely cannot. Um, and he couldn't get it to be able to. So any battlefield use of nuclear weapons would affect Russian troops. It would also preclude any future Russian advances into irradiated areas, which is actually in some respects more of a problem for him uh, from the standpoint of messaging to his uh, war hawk uh, audience than you might imagine, because it means that the Russian advances are effectively over. But yeah, this is the, the areas that he would be attacking are close to Russia. Russians would be affected. Yes, these are all some of the reasons why uh, I'm skeptical that, that he will use uh, tactical nuclear weapons. If he were to use tactical nukes to stop the Ukrainian advance, the Ukrainian advance is taking place in regions of Ukraine that he just annexed. So wouldn't they unlawfully annex, but wouldn't he be effectively launching a nuclear strike on Russia in his from the Russian perspective? <laughs> oh, Mark, you know, what's what's Russia? I mean, um, the, the crazy thing about all of this is that he annexed uh, illegally annexed a bunch of territory and has refused to state exactly what the border is that he's annexed. Um because he doesn't control the territory that he claims to have seized. Uh, yep. But yeah, I mean, depending on when and where he does this, he would be uh, using, or he might be, and depending, of course, on what exactly he hits, he might be hitting targets that are within territory that he's claimed to be Russia, which would be an interesting, uh, it would be an interesting information operation he'd have to run about that. Fred, increasingly, I've got to say, and I, it, one doesn't want to make light of this, but it does start to feel like we're in an episode of, you know, Mad Magazine. and. The question that I'm often left with when looking at and when reading, you know, your and your team's analysis of all of this is how secure is Putin at home? There are masses of Russians trying to escape his conscription. Uh, there have been some cracks in the facade on Russian news and among commentators. We hear, although I don't know how reliably, that some of his more insane supporters, uh, Kadyrov others, uh, on Telegram channels are you know, attacking him from the right, if we can call it the right. Is he secure? Is you know, Look, I always say you should estimate the chances of any given you know, regime falling at you know, under 0.1% because that's what history would tell you. And yet regimes fall. Putin is more vulnerable and weaker domestically than he has been since he took power 
And the cracks are remarkable. We're seeing members of his inner circle attacking other members of his inner circle in public. We're seeing actually attacks starting to be directed at him from his core, you know, pro-war Russian nationalist extremist base. And this is, it's a very serious challenge. And frankly, I think he is behaving as if he is very scared about it. You know, the weirdest thing that I got to do um, the other day was to talk about the Pugachev Rebellion. And you can say, what the hell is the Pugachev Rebellion? The Pugachev Rebellion was a, was a serf rebellion in, 17, uh, in the 1770s against Catherine the Great. Why am I talking about that? Because Putin did. It was an absolutely bizarre exchange that he had with a bunch of teachers in which he started asking them about the causes of the Pugachev Rebellion. And he wasn't satisfied with the answers that he was getting, which were historically accurate. And he said, no, 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 no. The reason it started was because someone decided that he was Tsar. And then he said, why did that happen? Because of the weakness of the central power. This is Putin. Putin volunteered this. So all I can say is he is clearly thinking about his vulnerabilities and he is worried about something. And he's actually manifesting that in public in a way that I've never seen before. So I do think that we need to take very seriously the, the possibility that he there, there really are cracks in his base that he is and should be concerned about. Again, though, you should always estimate the probability of regime collapse in any regime as being very low. So the uh, head of British intelligence said the other day that Putin is making strategic mistakes in Ukraine because nobody can go into the Kremlin and tell him you're wrong, Mr. President. And dictators tend to miscalculate because no one is willing to tell them they're wrong or say, you know, no one was willing to walk in into Putin's office and say, to use Ronald Reagan's phrase, bang his hand on the desk in the Kremlin and say, uh, I don't like the way you're running this war. But it sounds from you like there are people within his circle who are egging him on, who are doing more nuclear saber rattling than he is. What is the dynamic there? Is, is, is it possible that he could miscalculate on this either because no one is willing to tell him he's wrong or because there are people pushing him to push the nuclear button? Yes, it is possible. We're monitoring those people very carefully and they, they are generally not right now pushing him to, to use nuclear weapons. They're making other demands uh, for various reasons, including that nuclear weapons don't get him what they want because what they want is to conquer Ukraine and using nuclear weapons in this defensive way doesn't get them that. So it, you know, we would be in it, I would be more worried when those people start really talking about using nuclear weapons loudly, but they're, they're, they're not actually right now, which is sort of noteworthy. But what's also been really interesting, and this is something that the, the team at the Institute for the Study of War and especially Katerina Stepanenko, uh, one of the um, analysts there has, Notice that there's this mill blocker community in Russia that has been reporting out in a lot of detail on Russian failures on the battlefield. And Putin listens to these guys. He's met with them at least twice. And a bunch of these guys were actually in the audience at his uh, most recent big uh, speech announcing the partial mobilization. And they are telling him about problems on the battlefield and they are circumventing the Russian Ministry of Defense. And in fact, there's now a fight between these guys and the Ministry of Defense because the ministry is trying to shut them down and Putin won't let it. So he is hearing about problems on the battlefield. And a lot of the problems he's hearing about are, are, are real problems. At the same time, these guys are egging him on. But here's the thing, Mark, he can't fix these problems. This is the fundamental problem that he has. The, the problems that are being reported to him accurately are systemic and the results of how the war has been fought. They're not things that can be turned around in months, let alone weeks. So he's hearing from a constituency that's telling him about the problems. He's listening to them, but he can't satisfy their demands because he can't fix those problems in any reasonable time frame. So, Fred, let's just talk a little bit about the battlefield situation. Since this war broke out, we've had you on several times. Thank you again. Uh, we've had folks from Institute for the Study of War that are tracking this uh, just fantastically. Um, we've had Jack and we've had others. You predicted this in quite copious detail that 
you know, the Russians were going to run out of steam, that they would be able to gather that steam again, that the Ukrainians were going to be able to achieve some battlefield successes because of that. All right. Where does this go from here? You've given a great track record. Now keep going. Set aside the nuclear question. How do we look forward? Are the Ukrainians going to continue to succeed? Are they going to take back territory? Where do we reach the limit of this? Well, I can't actually answer the question because now the the issue depends on the Ukrainians. And because as a matter of policy, we don't collect on the Ukrainians and we certainly don't report on them. I don't know what the Ukrainian capabilities are. What I can tell you is that the, the future trajectory of the conventional war depends simply on that. If the Ukrainians have the ability to continue their counteroffensives, and if the West continues to lean in to supporting them with the weapons and material that they need, then the Russians will not be able to stop them conventionally. Um, and the Ukrainians will be able to push to the uh, 2014 borders for sure. Um, probably they could take the areas of Donetsk and Luhansk that were occupied in 2014. Crimea, I don't know. I mean, it's Crimea is so easy to defend from the Russian perspective that it's, it's hard to tell. I could see ways where that might happen. But in general, if the West backs the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians uh, have the capability that I think but don't know they do, uh, they can reclaim uh, almost all of their country and the Russians will not be able to stop them conventionally. Fair enough. This brings us to a, just a question about American politics and about the outsider support for Ukraine. And I don't want to transition entirely to talking about how Washington thinks about this, but I have a piece coming out I hope this week, um, which details just how badly we've been delaying and dithering and causing trouble with shipments to Ukraine. Yes, they've been decisive, but you know there's so much daylight dollars short. And when you list it, which I've done, it is stunning. There's another piece of this as well. Lavrov, I saw just today as we're speaking, said, yes, Putin would be happy to sit down with Joe Biden and talk about resolving this. I worry very much that between our dilatory problems, the Europeans who are even more dilatory than we are, and this you know, plea for help from Moscow, they could be looking at some serious political headwinds. Do you think that's a real question? Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm of course very worried about that too. The the person who's been saving us from uh, that danger in general terms Danny is Putin because he can't seem to and and actually for reasons that I think I understand, he can't stop on a regular basis ripping off the mask and basically saying, "Oh, you thought I was Putin? No, I'm Hitler." Oh wait, you thought I was Hitler? No, I'm Satan. Um you thought I was Satan? No, I'm really Satan. And he keeps doing such evil things. And then at the same time, he's not offering anything. Lavrov said he's waiting for a serious offer. The serious offer is a surrender. The the Russians have not indicated that they are willing to accept anything other than the original war aims. And frankly, I don't think Putin is willing to accept anything other than the original war aims. So Lavrov says that. But then when you ask, okay, well, what what do the Russians regard as a serious offer? The serious offer is a surrender. And it's a demand for surrender while the Russians are on the one hand losing on the battlefield and on the other hand, just doing insanely evil things. So I think I, I am always worried about the tendency in the West to try to accept any, you know, air quotes, peace in order to air quotes, stop the fighting. Um, in ways that Putin has learned how to master in Syria and elsewhere, in Ukraine, of course, also before 2022. But the dynamics of the war, I think, are actually going to make it very hard for Western leaders to uh, fall for this stuff. And I think the internal dynamics of Russia are going to make it hard for Putin to be clever enough to play this off well. So I'm worried about it, but I'm not panicked about it. So just to underscore Danny's point, you know, we, we haven't gotten yet to the Armageddon comments that Biden made at the fundraiser. We can talk about that in a minute. But later on in that same soliloquy, he said this. This is a quote. We're trying to figure out what what is Putin's off ramp? Where where does he get off? Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not not only not lose face, 
but lose significant power within Russia. Why are we worried about that? That just shows that what Biden is looking at is that he's trying to find an off-ramp for Putin that's a compromise in his mind, uh, that he doesn't lose power, that he doesn't lose prestige in Russia, that he doesn't lose face. That seems completely incompatible with the Ukrainian goal of complete liberation of their country, doesn't it? Well, I, I mean, in a certain fundamental sense, I think it's actually kind of irrelevant because Putin isn't looking for off-ramps and isn't looking to save face. He's looking to win because that's how Putin thinks. I think it is a problem that people are thinking that way. I think that there's a there's an over-intellectualization of this situation and a mirror imaging that is not applicable to Putin, who doesn't think in terms of off-ramps. There is a question of how we get Putin to accept a defeat. That's a, that's a very important question, and we do need to think about that. And I think I want to be careful about um, attacking all of this language, because I don't think it's right to talk about off-ramps and saving face, but I do think that we need to have a cogent theory of how we get Putin to accept the defeat that we should be trying to impose on him in Ukraine. And I think that there are ways of doing that, but it is it is fraught and it is complicated and there is a discussion to be had there. So I think if we can strip away a little bit of the over-intellectualization of this and the mirror imaging and simply recognize that it should be the policy of the United States and its allies to help Ukraine inflict a defeat on Putin, which is very much in our interests uh, for many, many reasons, then the question is how, what, how do we create conditions in which he will accept that defeat, uh, at least for a time, in his mind. That, that's, a, that's a tricky conversation, and that's the one that I think we should be having. You know, we just saw the Ukrainians blow up the bridge between Russia and Crimea, and several Ukrainian uh, bloggers showed a picture of the roadway going into the water and tweeted out, there's your off-ramp. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, <laughs> but it gets us to the uh, question, which is, you've laid out the fact that you know, Putin doesn't want to accept defeat. But there's no way for him to win. So he can't win the war, but he can't afford to lose the war. How do we manage this to a non-nuclear end? Well, you know, again, Mark, I don't want to offer a glib answer to that. And I do, if we're going to have to, we really are going to have to think this through. I mean, in general terms, I think we need to present Putin with a, with a situation in which he cannot stop the conventional defeat, in which we can credibly deter him from using nuclear weapons and in which we persuade him that continuing to try to fight will uh, put his own uh, rule in, you know, in, at risk, not because we're going to do anything, but just because the price he's going to have to demand of the Russian people for a war that he's losing is going to be too high. Um, and I can, I can circumstances in which he decides that he needs to accept a, what he will regard as a temporary defeat in Ukraine, in order to re-solidify his base so that he can come back after it again. But the starting point, even if you're thinking about off-ramps, the starting point for that is persuading Putin that he cannot win. And if I were really to get in and critique the off-ramp discussion, it's that it doesn't start with, Putin has to know that he can't win. He has to be certain that he can't win and that he can't escalate. And then we can talk about off-ramps if you like, but by that, I mean getting him to accept those realities. That's what we should be focusing on in the first instance, because as long as he thinks he can win, he's not taking any off-ramps or doing anything other than trying to win because that is Putin. So Fred, you know, we've talked about what Putin might do in terms of a tactical nuclear strike. What should the Biden administration be doing? How does the United States deter Putin from using nuclear weapons? I think a lot of people, um, you know, including Dave Petraeus and others, have articulated what the right approach here is, which is to make it very clear to Putin that if he uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the U.S. and its partners will enter the war on Ukraine's side and destroy the Russian military in Ukraine with conventional weapons. There's no need for us to use nuclear weapons, and I would, um, I, I, we shouldn't. Um, but we do have the capability, basically, to end this war uh, by destroying the Russian military in Ukraine. And I would make it, I would be making it very clear to Putin that that is the first thing that we would do. 
Uh, and then if he, if he sought to escalate further, there are other conventional military things that we could do uh, that would have the effect of just destroying the Russian military. I would, I would be prepared to go far down that path, and I would not be interested in using nuclear weapons of our own until and unless Putin actually looked like he was imminently going to use them against us, which I frankly think is extraordinarily unlikely, because in this respect, he is not Hitler. Uh, I do not think that Putin is interested in, in bringing the world down in flames around him. That's not the kind of calculation that he makes. So that's the general approach to deterrence that I would, uh, that I would choose. Okay, he's not actually Hitler. He doesn't actually want to bring the world uh, top around him. So in fact, are we really looking at Armageddon? And was that a wise thing for the president to have said, ignoring the circumstances that he was, you know, at a fundraiser and all the rest of that. Was that a smart thing to say? Well, I, no, I don't think that we're looking at Armageddon. Um, I think, I mean, yes, you, if, you, if you squint really hard and look at some extraordinarily low probability, um, high impact scenarios, you could see how that could happen. Um, but I think that that is un unlikely to the point of, of vanishingly improbable. But to Biden's comment, I have a, a lot of issues with where he said it and what he said and what sort of thought process that that reflects. But in a certain fundamental way, I think it was actually helpful because the logical train that is implicit in that statement is if Putin uses nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the US will take military action. If Putin escalates in response, response to that action, the U.S. will escalate further. And if Putin continues to escalate, then the U.S. will nuke him. That's the only way that you get Armageddon, right, is that you have a full-scale thermonuclear exchange. Well, by Biden saying that, there is a weirdly an implicit threat. And candidly, I think Putin heard that. And it has been interesting to listen to Putin's rhetoric and observe his actions as he has escalated and talked about escalating and after that statement, I think Putin heard the threat that is implicit in that. I don't know whether Biden meant to it, make it a threat, but it is logically there and I think Putin heard it. And so in that sense, I actually think that it was probably net helpful with Putin, weirdly. So I gotta say, I mean, I would like you to be right. Here's what I worry about in the internal logics administration. These are the people who, ran away from Afghanistan in the dark of night. These are the people, the very same people who ran away from Iraq in 2011. These are people who are always looking for an excuse not to do something. And so my fear is that the internal logic isn't what Putin heard. It's actually to persuade ourselves that we need to give him the off-ramp that we talked about before, which I agree entirely doesn't exist. There isn't an off-ramp, but I worry that they're going to go looking even harder for one with the Olaf Schultzes of this world, you know, rather than actually validate what I think should be the very valid, terrific deterrent suggesting that, you know, your action will have actual consequences from the United States might be. I hope you're right and I'm wrong. Well, I hope I'm right and you're wrong too. I think <laughs> I, I see I see your fear. I say that I feel like I say that a lot, Danny, I think. Um, you know, I, listen, I, I see your fear and I'm concerned about it. And, and it does, it does absolutely correlate with the discussions about offerings and so forth. I guess I just feel like the general pattern of events is going to make it very hard for the those in the administration who want to pursue that kind of path to do so. And I don't see Putin on a trajectory that's going to make it easier. So I am concerned about that. But, you know, I, I, I also keep an open mind. Yes, you know, this administration uh, did what it did in Afghanistan. And I've said what I intend to say about that. On the other hand, they've done things in Ukraine that we never would have thought that they would have done. And they have, in fact, supported Ukraine. And without American support, Ukraine would not be independent at this point uh, for all of the courage of its people. Um, I think it is important to give the administration credit for the very important things that it's done, which I don't think were in any way inevitable, even while, uh, you know, holding it accountable for, as you say, the delays and the, and the uh, limitations and various other hes hesitancies um, that, that it has shown. But 
I think we need to be, I think we need to recognize, and I know you do, the administration's response to Ukraine has not been in any way the same as its response to Afghanistan. And I think we, you know, we can contemplate the possibility that people learn. So, Fred, I think your reading of what Biden said is very generous, and I love that about you. But I worry that what Putin heard was, I've got Biden worried about Armageddon, and I can use that to get him to back down uh, in his support for, for Ukraine. But here's the question. Should Biden say what you said? Should Biden very publicly lay out declaratory policy as to what would happen if Russia did, in fact, use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine? Or should that be something that is communicated privately? Or should it be something that's just left ambiguous and leave Putin guessing? There's been this whole debate in Taiwan about whether we have strategic, should abandon strategic ambiguity or whether for strategic clarity. Should we have strategic ambiguity or strategic clarity when it comes to Russia and nuclear weapons? Well, if you want to deter somebody, then ambiguity is is ungood in, in general, I think. Certainly ambiguity about whether you're committed to take certain kinds of actions. I would certainly want a you know deterrence statement to be communicated privately. I don't I'm not reading Biden's statement generously or ungenerously. I'm observing a certain logic in it, and I'm observing Putin's reaction. Uh, it is interesting that. Putin's announcement of the horrific war crimes that the Russian uh, military committed yesterday and again today in retaliation uh, for whoever it was who blew up the Kerch Strait Bridge. Um, <laughs> Putin's statement of that included an explicit statement that uh, escalation would be proportional, which we haven't heard from him before. Um, his commentary has been more cautious about this. And uh, you know, this was an incident when he could very well have escalated to nuclear use. Now, I don't tie that directly to Biden's statement, but I have to say that if we're looking for evidence on the ground and in Putin's actions that he's took Biden's statement as some kind of a green light, we're, we see the opposite, actually. So it's not a question of reading it generously or unjust generously. It's just a question of pointing out that for all of the problems with it that, that you and others are identifying, there's a flip side. And there does seem to be reason to see in Putin's statements and actions that Putin is aware of what the flip side of that statement was or what is implied. And of course, you and I, I think, have no idea what has been communicated privately uh, to the Russians. But Putin seems to be proceeding rung by rung and sometimes half rung by half rung up the escalation ladder very cautiously. And it is the, is the behavior of a guy who is not at all certain that jumping rungs or moving to higher escalation levels will work out for him well. So as Petraeus would say, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I'm a realist. I, I'm just observing the situation and saying that so far, it does not appear that, that, that our deterrence is failing with Putin in a big way. Fred, I was going to wrap up, and I know we need to let you go, and that I lied about how long we would keep you, and you're used to that. Um, but I never believed uh, my, you anyway. <laughs> Good. Exit question, but I, I mentioned before when we were chatting that I wanted to ask you about this, is you can't end this conversation without a good axis of evil conversation. The Iranians who are busy killing girls and beating up their citizens are providing the drones that Putin is using to indiscriminately hit Ukrainian cities and kill innocent civilians. What the hell? Well, yes, it's, you know, it, <laughs> did you think it was an axis of virtue? Um, this is, you know, this is evil. <laughs> Good you know, point. Evil, evil dictators help each other out. The good thing about this is those drones are not that great. And as we demonstrated in Syria, the Ukrainians are now demonstrating in Ukraine. It, you can shoot them down and the Ukrainians have shot down a high proportion of them. They, you know, From the Russian perspective, it's an act of desperation. Um, you know you're in trouble when, as Russia, when you have to buy stuff from Iran. You know that you're really in trouble when you're talking about buying artillery shells or anything from North Korea. 
So the presence of these things in Ukraine is an indication of how much uh, trouble Russians are in and how terrible their defense industry is performing right now. But it's also, it is a demonstration that yes, this is an axis. Uh, and it is an axis in the World War II sense of states that are uh, working with each other and supporting each other in the common aim of destroying the, the liberal world order that uh, we uh, care about, that we depend on, uh, that matters so much to us, uh, and that the, the Iranians are, uh, are in on that. Happily, the Iranians are going through what I actually think is the most serious crisis and threat to the regime they have faced since the Iran-Iraq war. And Yay. things are not looking so good there. And I'm thrilled that the superlative team Critical Threats Project uh, in conjunction with the ISW has been uh, running a daily tracker on, on that. And really uh, what we're seeing is uh, challenges to the Iranian regime and it, it, stupidity on the part of Iranian regime responses that is uncharacteristic, um, even for them. And when you put those two things together, I'm not sure how much longer the Iranians are going to be able to be sending drones to the Russians. That It's going to be interesting to watch that. So Fred, exit question for me. Accepting that there's no certainty in national security politics, but if you were sitting in the Oval Office and the president of the United States said to you, Fred, Yes or no? Will this end with a mushroom cloud in Ukraine? What would your answer be? Not if we do it right, sir. Not if we make clear to Putin what the consequences of that would be. No. That's good news. Now, now I wish somebody was in the Oval Office (laughs) telling him that, (laughs) along with all your other excellent strategic (laughs) advice. Fred, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> but seriously, in the old days, in the old days, Fred, you would have gotten that call. That's what drives me crazy. You know, it has been more than a decade since we've had an administration that actually did pick up the phone and call people like you, regardless of party, just to get good advice, just to hear, you know, what what people are saying. And it's distressing to me that both Republicans and Democrats have forgotten what it's like to do that. But you know what? At least we have you. And yay, thank goodness. You guys are doing such great work and we know how busy you are. And so I know how much of a big favor it was that I asked you to be on. Thank you for saying yes. Not at all. It's delightful to be back with you again, Danny. Thanks so much. And Mark. Thank you, Fred. Take care. Okay, Danny, let me ask you the same question I asked Fred. Does this war end with a mushroom cloud or doesn't it? Well, I'm going to give you the same answer Fred gave you. You know, it's impossible to to prognosticate on this because it's one man's decision at the end of the day. And as much as the intelligence community likes to tell us that they have complete clarity on all things, whether it's Iran's nuclear program or what Vladimir Putin is thinking about what outfit to wear on that day, that's actually not true. Uh, This is a decision he and probably he alone is going to make. And I think the one thing that we forget, and I've talked about this before, is how much people like Putin, like Ayatollah Khamenei, like Xi Jinping, like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, these people live in a different reality. It's not just what Donald Trump liked to call fake news. They believe different things than we do. Uh, And, you know, they think America and NATO did egg Ukraine on. You know, the Iranians do believe that we're behind the demonstrations at home. They're lying, of course, about a lot, but they believe a lot of what they say. And for that reason, I think it's even harder for us to calculate what in his reality he thinks is the right thing to do. You just make a very important point, which is why I'm even more concerned about what Biden said. I worry about the message that what happens in Ukraine sends to Xi Jinping. Like if if Putin is able to rattle his nuclear saber and deter us from bringing this to a successful conclusion for the Ukrainians and a utter and complete humiliating defeat for Russia, then Xi Jinping looks at that and says, well, I've got nuclear weapons. I can deter the Americans from getting involved if we invade Taiwan. And North Korea looks at that and says, well, I can deter the Americans if we want to invade South Korea. This has implications. Our response to this nuclear saber rattling has implications globally 
for our deterrence. And I always go back to my favorite phrase that I learned from Donald Rumsfeld, which is weakness is provocative. That if you show weakness on the world stage, then it encourages dictators to miscalculate. No rational actor would use a nuclear weapon unless they thought that it would not elicit the kind of American response, as Fred points out, that it almost certainly would have to. And so Joe Biden is not showing weakness in Ukraine in the sense that he is giving them the weapons and the training and the intelligence and all the rest of it, albeit as you, as you point out, and I'm looking forward to your piece next week, you know, with a cattle prod to do it. But he projects weakness by the way he talks about this, and it encourages Putin. And so I think we need to be very clear if we don't want Putin to miscalculate and use a tactical nuke. Uh, we need to be very clear about the consequences and not express worries about Armageddon as a Democratic fundraiser, <laughs> but express outrage that he would even do it and determination that he would pay an unacceptable price if he even dared to put his finger on that nuclear trigger. To underscore just the point you made, why was Putin emboldened to act in Ukraine in the first yes. place? You can draw a direct line from Afghanistan and the ignominious retreat that the Biden administration ordered there to Putin's invasion of Ukraine because of that lack of deterrent. I think that is, you are exactly right. You can draw the line even further back to the Obama-Biden administration's failure to enforce its red line in Syria, which they, they said that if Syria used chemical weapons on its people, that there would be a military consequences. And then they did. And the Obama-Biden administration didn't follow through. And not only that, they turned to Vladimir Putin to get them out of it. They had Sergei Lavrov go on behalf of Putin to Assad and negotiate this fake deal, which we later learned never happened, to give up his chemical weapons and turn them over to the Russians to destroy. And then it turns out that he kept them, a significant number of them. So Vladimir Putin is drawing a line going back to the eight years that Biden was Obama's vice president. And now to his presidency, which continued with the disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal and drawing conclusions about America's resolve. We need to wrap up. But one thing I want to leave everybody with, because I just spent some substantial amount of time working on drawing a line between the personnel that were in power during the Obama administration, who are still in power now during the Biden administration, the expectation that the same people in the same circumstances are going to act differently is, I believe, pretty close to the definition of insanity. And one thing we know about the Obama administration is our enemies were emboldened wherever they were. Think about this when you ask yourself, what will Joe Biden do next? Hmm, what did he do the last time? Who were the advisors who told him the last time? They're the same exact people. They behave the same exact way. Amen. One final uh, word to our listeners. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, we think you like us. <laughs> and so if you've gotten this far in the podcast, I urge you pick up your phone right now and push the subscribe button if you haven't done it. We'd love to have you as a subscriber. We'd love to have you listening every week. Uh, and tell your friends, rate us, and uh, spread the word that you, uh, you enjoy this podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in. We're so grateful to everyone who listens to us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.